Good morning. We, uh, we are going to turn to Psalms 4 this morning. Uh, we have just gotten through teaching through the whole book, nearly a year in 1 Corinthians. And um, we typically do that. If you're new with us at Fellowship, we teach through books of the Bible. And uh, we'll be starting in a couple of weeks the Old Testament book of Jonah. And so for the, this week and next week, we sort of have a couple off uh, sermons here, but but important nonetheless. Uh, we felt like that in the book of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul and the Lord were just getting after us, right? Correction of a correction of a correction. And yet there's something certainly that's true, universally true for all of us, and that is that life is hard. And when life is hard, we need God and his word to speak to us then as well. So turn with me to one of my favorite Psalms, if you would, Psalms chapter 4, that addresses this real topic of life being difficult. Uh, a few years back, I came across a Sports Illustrated uh, article as a tribute uh, to a coach named Bill Bowerman uh, after his death in 1999. And Bowerman was actually the head track coach at the University of Oregon. And under his 24 years as head coach there, he coached 31 Olympians, 51 All-Americans, won four NCAA national titles, and in 1962, he wrote this classic book called Jogging, which sort of first introduced the sport of jogging as a fitness phenomena in the United States. So many of us may be jogging based back on that book, if we are jogging and don't even know it. Uh, on a handshake, part of the, the intrigue of this story is on a handshake, he joined a former Oregon athlete runner uh, by the name of Phil Knight, and they started a company called Blue Ribbon Sports, now known as Nike, or Nike, however you want to say it. And if you actually visit the headquarters of, of Nike in Oregon, you will see that it's located on Byerman Drive, named after Coach Byerman. Uh, some people say he's actually most famous for destroying his wife's waffle maker when trying to, to make the bottom of the first running shoe with a waffle bottom there. So uh, pretty interesting. But there was one particular line in that article that stood out to me that I've remembered for a long time. And it said, Coach Byerman awoke each morning with a new set of eyes. And if there's anything that you and I need when life is hard and life is painful is we need a new set of eyes to see God clearly so we can follow him faithfully and glorify him passionately even when life is hard. Because if there's anything that causes God to be distorted in our view, it is pain. Life is hard for each of us. During multiple occasions of our lives, we go through those seasons. And for those of us who are young now, you can tend to think like I did when I was young. Really? Right? So, uh, but for those of us, as we get older, we know how true that is. So let me paint for us, if we could, a context for Psalm chapter 4. It, it's really to be paired with Psalm 3. So Psalm 3 is called the morning psalm. That's the, that's the first of the pairing. And Psalm 4 is called the evening hymn. And we'll see more why later in verse 8. <clears throat> and in this context, there's been a natural disaster. Uh, most experts, most Old Testament scholars say that natural disaster is a famine. And a famine 
or, or sorry, not a famine, but a drought, no water in a desert means life is at stake. And, and in spite of all that God, who's called Yahweh in the Old Testament, has done, in spite of his hesed and faithful and loyal love, in spite of his covenant with his people, in spite of his provision to them daily and over and over over the years, the Israelites, especially the leaders, have immediately begin to doubt God and slander God. And even worse, they begin to chase after other gods, little g, because there's no rain and there is a drought. But more than that, they actually turn their anger and doubt and unbelief on God's anointed leader, David, because he is believing God. He is trusting God. And, uh, and they really have these unfulfilled expectations that God has not done what they think he should have done. And I remember years ago, a marriage counselor, Gary Smalley, uh, you may remember that name, very uh, famous, wrote lots of books on marriage. Jen and I got the honor of having lunch with him early in our marriage, and he said something I never forgot. He said, unfulfilled expectations are greatest person's source of frustration and anger. Can we all just say amen to that, right? So here's the deal. David is in shock in some ways. He is exasperated. He's stressed out. He's discouraged. Life is hard for David, and life is hard for the people of Israel, and that we get to see in Psalms 4 a contrast of the response to life being hard for both of them. David does it one way, and I'll give you a hint, because David has a very clear view and picture of who God is. And the Israelites and their leaders do it another way because they have a very clear view of their circumstance. So that's the picture we're painting this morning. So the first thing David does in verse 1 is he says, press the help button. Press the help button. Read verse 1 with me. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So David cries to God for help. He presses the help button when life is hard. And the question I ask when I'm studying a passage like this is, why does God, what makes David cry to God for help? The answer is actually in the verb tense of the second part of verse 1. He says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. It is in the past tense. David said, I, we've done this dance before. David's cry to God for help in the present on behalf of the future is actually anchored in the truth of God's faithfulness to him in the past. You know, we've all been through, how many of you, raise your hand if you've been through a job interview, some form, some fashion. 100% of the time, what they always do in that interview is they ask you about your past. They ask those that know you best about your past. They ask those that you've worked with about your past because your past is always a great indicator of what you will do in the future. And David is saying the same is true for God and his past is glorious. So I go back there first. David's cry for help from God because God has been faithful and present to him in the past. David has this great track record of God's faithfulness to him. David has eyes to look backward 
Israel only has eyes to look right in front of their nose. Isaiah 46 puts it this way. Remember, God is speaking here, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. The scripture is full of the word remember what I have done. Remember who I am. Remember what I can do. You are dealing not with anybody. You are dealing with God. John Piper puts it this way, and I put it in quote in your notes. He says, when something drops into your life that seems to threaten your future, remember this. The first shock waves of the bomb are not sin. The, the first immediate response of being overwhelmed are not sin. The real danger is yielding to them, giving in, putting up no spiritual fight. And the root of that surrender is unbelief. A failure to look back to God's past faithfulness so that you can believe and cling to God's future faithfulness or future grace. It is a failure ultimately, he says, to cherish all that God promises to be for us in Jesus. So my next question in looking at this text is, what is David looking back to? Well, if we look at the scriptures of David's life, we could see God choosing him as really a nobody teenager, choosing him to be his anointed king, you know, old crazy Saul, King Saul, needed a harp player, and just by coincidence, David's name came up in the conversation. The battle with Goliath, we certainly know about him killing the giant Philistine, but I think as David ponders back, David sees something bigger than the victory against Goliath. He goes even farther back, as the scripture says, that David was alone in the pastures when no one saw him. There were no spotlights on. There were no crowds. He was alone and he was being faithful to do what? To take his slingshot, to kill the lion and the bear when no one was looking to protect the sheep so that when this public opportunity came to kill Goliath, David went back to that and said, God was preparing me then to do what he's called me to do today. The provision of Jonathan, a great friend to do life with. God's protection from his life, from Saul and Absalom and his enemies. All much of this when life is hard. 1 Samuel 30 gives us this picture of the Amalekites. They had made this raid against the people of God. And they, you can read this later. They kidnapped all the wives and children. And when David and the men came back, they realized this. And the people said were angry with David and wanted to kill him. What did David do? The scripture tells us, 1 Samuel 30, but, God, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And how do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God? We go backwards, remembering God's great faithfulness to us. Here in verse 1, he does it again. He cries out, O God of my righteousness. David appeals to nothing within himself, but to the one who declared him righteous simply because of his belief in Yahweh. He appeals to the righteous character of God. Now, let me give us a huge takeaway this morning, a huge, very practical application that has been precious to me personally about 
12 years ago now, 11 or 12 years ago, I read a book by John Piper called Future Grace in a very dark season. And it's, it's thick, but it's got nice chapters in it. It is something to chew on. And it's this whole principle that we can trust God for his future grace based on his past faithfulness. That that is the springboard that gives us the ability to do that. And there are two primary ways in which we as God's people develop this track record of seeing God clearly even when life is hard. And here's what it is. Number one, we look to his word and we see who he is how he works, we see his character, we see his power, we see his sovereignty to his people in the scriptures. We have what David really didn't have. We have 66 books of the Bible that's all about God and how he deals with us and who he is and what he does and how he does it. It's all right there. We, we take verses like Romans 8, 28, and 29, and there's many of these kind of verses, and, we, and this is what Romans 8, 29 says, all those, so, so much I can't remember, I just went blank, that God works everything for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, 28, and verse 29, so that, so that he may conform us into the image of his beloved son. We take those kind of verses and we drive them deep into our soul. So when the winds of life blow, we, we literally have these states of truth of who God is and what he's doing, that he will not waste these dark and hard times in our lives. Secondly, we look back to our own experiences with him. We look back to his tender mercies to us when we did not deserve it. And if your life is like mine, there has been countless times where God's mercies were new and fresh to you and you did not deserve it. We look back to times when we had no sense and we came to our senses. And that realization had nothing to do with us being wiser. It really, we know that the truth of the matter is, is that God woke us up. My favorite uh, part of Luke chapter 15, which is the famous story of the prodigal son, is that phrase that the prodigal son says, when he came to his senses. <laughs> when he came to his senses. We know God has brought us to our senses. We look back to his answered and unanswered prayers that show that he knows better for us and our good than we know for ourselves. That he, he really is writing this story. And I think the older I get and the older we get, it's like we look back and we have a longer history and we say, oh Lord, thank you that you are the author of my story, not me, that I did not get what I want. I did not get what I wish and I am more comfortable with, with all of that. And the key to this, the key to all this, don't miss this or you'll miss the takeaway. We do it very consistently day in and day out in the midst of the calm, in the midst when we are sane, when we have sanity, 
We do those two things over and over and over. We prepare the walls of our souls for the storm and the insanity to come because it's not a question of if it will come. It is a question of when it will come. And when it comes, if we have done this, we will be able to stay to the plow and press forward, trusting in the one who can provide for us more than we can provide for ourselves. And then we will say what Paul says in First or 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. <laughs> we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. David says, press the help button. Now, David turns his conversation from God to people. It's a great principle that would keep most of us out of trouble to talk to God before we talk to people, right? David does that here. And the second thing he says is to reject hitting the eject switch. Reject hitting the eject switch. Now, we all know there are times in life where we do need to cut and run. We need to hit eject and get out because circumstances are like, whoa, I got to get out of here. I think of my son, Josh, who is a pilot in the Navy and uh, I've said jokingly over the years, I'm continually amazed they would allow him to fly on your taxpayer money, a $300 million jet, because my son can't drive a car, right? <laughs> like he scares you to death. He's multitasking. He says, dad, it's just natural. I'm good at it. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to ride with him. But they, they give him this plane to, to uh, fly. And um, uh, I remember when he was first in pilot training and he was showing me this, this big jet called the P-8 Poseidon. I said, is there an eject button in that thing? And, you know, how does that work? And, and, uh, and he said, yeah, there is. And, and uh, he said something interesting. He said, but you don't want to hit it until you really need it. I said, well, I get that. He said, but tell me more. And he said, well, you're guaranteed a concussion and you guarantee two broke legs. And I said, well, that's better than dying, right? You know, I get it. So, but David here, he says, look, don't hit ejection on God. Never hit the eject switch on God. In some ways, David's saying, how could you, especially for what he's done for you in your past, and how in Christ he has secured for you your future. It is a statement that David is, will see in these next few verses, two through seven, that is reiterating, if you would, John chapter six, what Jesus said to his disciples. He's teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. He has gathered a crowd. Think about this. He is starting a worldwide ministry and he has this following. And John six tells us that he really drives home of what it means to follow Christ, to follow hard after Christ. And the crowd's response to his hard challenge was, this is tough talk, who can even listen to it? And they all left but the 12 disciples. Now, if I'm Jesus, thank goodness I'm not, but if I am, I'm like, um, Trying to start a worldwide ministry. It's not really going good at first. Uh, y'all come back here. Maybe y'all misunderstood. He doesn't do any of that. He lets them go. Then he looks at his 12 disciples and says something very, very powerful. 
Why don't you leave too? And Peter, who we make fun of, but this time he got it right. Peter said, Lord, where and to whom would we go? For only you have words of eternal life. David is saying here, don't hit the eject button. God, there's nowhere else to go. Typically for us and the leaders of Israel, the memories of God's faithfulness fail us in three different ways. We get fickled instead of faithful. We get furious instead of calm. And we get fed up instead of hopeful. Let's unpack these three. Verses 2 and 3. Fickle instead of faithful. Verse 2 and 3. O men, David says, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. David here asked two questions. He has these emotions of shock. They've hit David upside his head. He's like, what are you thinking? He's saying, I'm God's anointed one. I'm trusting him faithfully, trying my best to walk with him and trying my best to help you walk with him. And you come, he says in, in verse three, and you question my integrity. You hold my heart in contempt because there's a drought as if I can do anything about a drought. Like I'm David, but I'm not God. And to make matters worse, he says at the end of verse 3, you go playing the harlot after other gods. See, see that little phrase, to seek after lies? <laughs> they have started to chase other gods or idols or vain things that have no power to do anything for them except to give them a temporary relief or temporary escape from the pain that they're in. To them, the leaders of Israel and the people of God, it only matters if God does what they want when they want him to. And they're actually siding with the God that is most helpful, and they're the ones that are making the definition of what's most helpful. Like, I don't care what truth is, just what's most practical and quickest. Israel's fickleness, we know from here and through the Old Testament, led to them having other lovers. And I think our fickleness does too. One of the great temptations of man and woman is that when life does not go the way we want it to, the way we expect it to, the way we demand it to, we go chasing after other things and we hit eject on God. And when we hit eject on God, we just don't live a vacuum or a void. We actually go toward other gods and chase them. Like, like we just don't go empty. We turn and chase other gods. And Psalm 78 says, For they provoked him, speaking of God, to anger with their high places, chasing after other gods, worshiping other gods. And they moved God to jealousy with their graven images. God is a jealous God he rages when we chase after other gods. And his jealousy is what drives him to chase us and woo us back. Verse 3 tells us ex the exact opposite of what ejecting from God or of ejecting from God. And David says this, 
But know the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. To be what? We know is we are to be a faithful bride to the groom. A faithful bride to Jesus himself. Verse 3b. When life is hard, God, David tells us God will hear your prayers. In some ways, David is saying, stay the course. Keep your hands to the plow. There's nowhere else you can go. Wait and watch what God and only God can do. And here's the kicker that I've learned the hard way and I'm still learning. The first place he wants to do something is in you and in me in the midst of that circumstance. It's why the psalmist writes. It's why he says, God, thank you that I was afflicted so that I may learn to walk in your ways for a lifetime. David is saying here, wade in deep waters and let God keep your nose above them. Fickle instead of faithful. Secondly, he says, don't hit the eject button because you're furious instead of calm. Look at verses four and five. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, own your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. <clears throat> now, we can see it's pretty obvious at this point in the passage, in the context that I've painted, that they are mad with God and they're mad at David. They're mad at God because he let them down. And they're mad at David because David is a tangible expression of God to them. And I've learned over the years when God's people get mad at God because God has not obeyed them, many times the first place it comes out is the next line of spiritual authority over them or the persons closest to them. Maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a mentor, maybe it's a discipler, a spouse, or a friend. Paul knew this contempt well. He's plants the church in, in Galatia. He stays there and brings people to Christ and grows them in their faith. And when he leaves, they go crazy, he writes a letter back, and he says to them, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? David's challenge to them is this. Feel your anger. He says, be angry. It is a command. You notice it's the same words that Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.26. Feel your anger. It's a command, but do not sin. And he says, this is how you don't sin. You lay down and you think about what you're feeling. You lay down and process what you are feeling and why you are feeling it. And then help begin to connect the dots between what you are feeling and who God really is. My goodness, what wisdom there is in all of that. That word angry in verse 4 is actually the word tremble. And tremble could be defined as this emotional response to some fearful stimulus and in this context, the fearful stimulus is there is a drought. There's no rain, which means to them a very short time before their life is actually threatened. And so here the circumstances are real. They're not just emotional. The circumstances are scary. They are painful. But their anger to God puts a distance between the only one who can actually make it rain 
which makes no sense. David is saying here, don't be angry at the one who is actually the one who can bring relief. Secondly, or thirdly, don't be fed up instead of hopeful. Look at verses 6 and 7. There are many who say, who will show us some good? David, David says that, who's shown us some good in this time of despair? And then he writes, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So David asked this question, verse 6, who will show us some good? Look, the people are down, depressed, despondent, cynical. They're fed up. They have given up. They have said, we need rain. We have no rain. Yahweh has not or cannot provide the rain. The other gods, little g, that we've called out to, they've not come through with rain. And David can't do squat about it. 6b. David says, lift up the light of your face upon us. David prays, Lord, show up. Show yourself. David turns to the God of hope. And in some ways he's saying, if we get rain and live, it will for sure come from the God who controls all the rain in the earth. There's only one place here. Verse 7, David makes this contrast, if you would, in a joy that wells up from within the person who sources God himself versus a joy that comes from any amount of provision or material wealth. David said there is a huge difference here. David, in verse 6 and 7, refuses to yield to his feelings of despondency and despair. He actually makes war on despondency and despair because of his lifetime knowledge of day by day consistently learning who God is in the calm in his pursuit of that and all that he has experienced on God. David writes again in Psalm 127 these words. And I think it's, it's a great model for us to feel our feelings and yet turn to God. Look what he says. David says, my flesh and my heart may fail. David is acknowledging in another circumstance that I am feeling despondent and in despair. Do you feel that? My heart and my flesh may fail. But immediately he, he, he fires this broad shot, if you would, across the bow to fight back against that despondency and despair to control him. And he says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that kind of shot that you fire back in the midst of despondency and despair, that only comes from a lifetime of doing what I said in point one, which is chopping the wood spiritually to know who God is and how he works and you trusting him. And then lastly, David said, uh, he said, press the help button. Don't hit eject on God. And then he says, at the end of the day, pull the trust trigger. Verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, as, as it's famously known around all the nations of the earth, I love to turkey hunt. And... Um, a few years ago, I took a guy with me who was an avid outdoorsman, 
and uh, avid fisherman, and I just made an assumption that I don't make anymore. And that assumption is that he had shot a shotgun before. <laughs> and I found out the hard way he had not shot a shotgun. And so we uh, nav Navajo or sneak up on this field, and I peeked out with a couple of gobblers out here. They were all alone looking for a hen. And so we used the cover of this massive tree, and I snuck up behind it, and I slid him up the tree. First time turkey hunting, but I thought he shot a shotgun. And I put his left shoulder on the tree, stuck his right eyeball right on the outside. And I got behind the tree, and I made sweet little callings. And he's like, oh, my, where's she at? And he's looking for it, and he's coming over there. And he looks, and I said, Burk, and he raised his head. And this guy shot, boom. And as soon as he shot, he disappeared from my sight. He went rolling like he landed about where that cross is. And he was down a hill and he rolled down the hill. And my first thought is the safety's not on the gun. There's two more shells. And I just hit the ground thinking, he, boom, you know, I'm going to get shot. And, and he's just rolling down the hill, and I look out to the field to my left, and the turkey's laying on its back kicking, and I look to the right, and the shooter's laying on his back kicking. <laughs> and so when I thought about this point, I thought, watch out when you pull the trust trigger. Something's going to happen that's awesome. And I don't mean your circumstances is going to change. I mean this is where God has been trying to get you all the time. The whole time through this circumstance, he's trying to get you to the end of yourself so that you will say, oh, Lord, I cannot control this. I don't know what you're doing. I know it's very painful. I'm scared out of my mind. I'm crying for help for you to do what only you can do to change this, to work in this. And I trust you. I lay my life before you in a new and fresh way. Like that's where he's trying to get us, is it not? And then what does he do? He shows up. And I believe it is when you and I get here, we truly see God with a new set of eyes. Oh, Lord, it is good that I was afflicted so that I might learn to walk in your ways. Verse 8. The results of learning to trust God, even when life is hard, is that you're able, David says, to lie down and go to sleep. Safety. Even when you sleep, God says, I've got your back. When we get to that point in the midst of life being hard, that we can lie down at night and go to sleep, knowing that God does not sleep, he does not slumber, he does not even doze off like some of you do when I'm preaching. <laughs> right? He is awake. He is not surprised. He's not scrambling around with all these problems to fix. And oh gosh, I didn't know that happened to Jeff. No, he's right there. He's getting us to this point where 
where we are engaged in it. We are awake with our pain. Our hearts are hurting. We're discouraged. It is real. We are fearful. And yet we come to this place where we say, Lord, I will go to sleep tonight knowing that you are still at work. The older I get, I'm not sure there's a more beautiful gift than that. Sleep is to remind you and I of three things. Sleep is a daily gift from God. One third of our lives are spent sleeping. Psalms 127 says he gives to his beloved sleep. Secondly, it's a reminder from God that he is God and I am not. Reminds me of my need. And three, laying down to sleep is a time that he says is to examine our hearts, to be quiet before him. That's what he says in verse 4. Those are beautiful times. Lay down. Think about who I am. Think about my character. Think about all that you know is true of me and place your trust in me and go to bed. Hmm. I think the other take of that, that the psalmist would, an implication is if we don't do that, if that's not a pattern of ours, then we end up fickled and furious and fed up. And we're disconnected from the God who loves us most. And then we got to learn it all over again. Take a minute this morning to ask the question, so what? When it comes to life as hard, what would be your next right step in all of that? As you think about the reality of living in a broken world with broken people and all that has and can happen, take a minute to do just that.